One of the things I was going to do in Germany was go to Landstuhl Medical Center, which is the main hospital in Germany where people come right off the battlefield and they go to the hospital. I walked in and I had a USO hat on and I didn't know what to say or how to start it. And somebody looked at me and he said, Lieutenant Dan! Hello and welcome to the Sunday Special. Our special guest today is Gary Sinise. He has a brand new book out. We're going to be talking with him about his journey in acting, his journey in service, his work with the military. We'll get to all of that. But first, with only days left until Valentine's, it seems like everybody is selling bouquets. Drugstores, supermarkets, gas stations, you name it. Your special someone deserves better than that. And that's why every Valentine's I order from my Rose Authority, 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, you can get 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade it to 24 assorted roses plus a vase for 10 bucks more. That's an amazing offer from 1-800-Flowers. 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade it to 24 assorted roses plus a vase for 10 bucks more. Roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak. They're shipped overnight to ensure freshness in her amazement. Every time I go out of town, I send my wife 1-800-Flowers because that's the kind of husband I am. You should be great also. 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 assorted roses plus a vase for $10 more. It's an amazing last-minute offer. Pick your delivery date. Let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. When it comes to Valentine's, I don't settle for anything less than my Rose Authority, 1-800-Flowers.com. Again, to order 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade it to 24 assorted roses plus that vase for $10 bucks more, go to 1-800-Flowers.com slash Shapiro. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash Shapiro. Hurry, the offer expires Monday. Now, I'll also remind you, you need to subscribe over at dailywire.com to hear the final question that we'll be asking Gary today, because that question is going to be so monumentally interesting that you're going to want to get behind that paywall. So go check us out. Go subscribe over at dailywire.com. Gary, thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Good <laughs> to see you. Thank so you, his brand new book, the book is Grateful American, A Journey from Self to Service. And it really is an inspiring book. We're living in a really divided time, obviously, Gary. And it's, it's really, uh, I think, a difficult time for most Americans, but it's a really uniting story. So let's start from the beginning. How did you get into acting? You grew up, you were telling me earlier that you grew up in the south side of Chicago. How do you go from there to world-famous movie star? <laughs> well, it's a bit of a long journey, but uh, I was, there's a story in the book where I, where I talk about that. Uh, just a, a circumstance. I, I stumbled into it, really, or somebody stumbled into me when I was in high school. I was kind of a uh, rock and roller. I had bands. I, I played in bands from the time I was like fifth to fifth, sixth grade or something like that. I had guitars and played in rock bands. Then I, I did that in junior high school. Then I got into high school, and I had a lot of trouble in high school. I was, I was. Academically, I was really struggling. Uh, this was in the late 60s and early 70s. It was a time that the crazy things were going on. Vietnam War was happening during this time. I got uh, caught up in some, uh, in some mischief there during, during my high school years, and I was, I was struggling. I was having a lot of trouble. And, you know, one of the things I did to escape was, was play music and play, play in bands. And I was standing in this hallway one, one time uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. This is Highland Park High School in Illinois, uh, on the north side of, of Chicago, north suburbs. I'm standing in a hallway, and this little lady, this little blonde lady, comes blowing down. I mean, she was like a hurricane or a typhoon or something, just whipping by. And I'm standing here with my rock and roll pals, you know, looking pretty scrubby and, you know, grungy and everything. She turns around, she goes, she goes, um, have you ever been in a play? <laughs> I said, no, 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 we're rockers, you know. And she said, well, I'm directing West Side Story and you look 
perfect for one of the gang members. So come and audition for the play. And she blew off down the hall. And we kind of looked at each other and laughed and everything like that. But the year before, uh, when I was a freshman, I went to another high school uh, in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And it was Glenbard West. And they had done West Side Story at the school when I was a freshman. And I went to see it. And I thought it was, you know, it'd be fun to get on stage and play gang member and, you know, you dance and rumble and all this stuff. So, uh, you know, I thought about it a little bit and after school there was the audition and I decided, well, let me just go down there and just see what's going on. So I was standing outside the audition, all the pretty girls are going in you know, to audition. I'm just So I turned to my bass player who was in my band. I said, let's go in. <laughs> and we went in and they handed me a script. I didn't know what I, what I was doing or anything like that. And I got up there, I started stumbling around, making jokes, people were laughing, and she put me in the play. And that was the beginning of my acting. After that, it changed my whole life. I mean, I, I was really a struggling kid. I, I was having a lot of trouble, and, and I write about that in the book, you know? And I think, uh, I think young people can, might be able to, to connect to that, you know? Uh, I was just not academic, uh, academically, I had a lot of trouble. I never learned how to read and write properly, I don't think, when I was in, you know, those fundamentals you learn in first, second, third grade. I just wasn't paying attention at all. I could barely read. So when I got up there and auditioned for the play and then I got in the play and then I found this community of people that kind of really, I just felt comfortable in it. And then I just wanted to do it over and over and over. And all through high school, I kept acting in plays and I, I ended up being one of the, you know, one of the top guys in the theater department. And because I was such a screw up, you know, early in high school, I didn't have enough credits to graduate on time with my class. So I had to go back to high school for a final semester. So I was supposed to graduate in 1973. And we, we say in the book that I graduated in 1973 and a half. That's when I graduated. Yeah, it, it, but uh, I kept doing it. And I met one of my best friends in high school, who's remained one of my best friends for years, Jeff Perry, who's a well-known actor here in town. And then uh, he, was, he was in the play, West Side Story, and Jeff and I became fast friends, best friends, did a lot of work together in high school. He went off to college, and then I started Steppenwolf Theater, and he uh, came and worked with us in one play, and then we founded what has become a theater that's lasted for 45 years now. Can you talk a little bit about Steppenwolf Theater? So for folks who don't know, Steppenwolf Theater is now one of the most storied theaters in the country. Uh, and you were obviously a founder of it. What, what was the original idea of it? And what do you think the legacy of it has been? Well, the original idea was just kids wanting to do plays. That was it. We just wanted to, to you know, kind of in that Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, let's put on a play kind of thing. And we did that. And uh, we found a, a church kind of that would let us use the church during the week and we would rehearse our plays and perform them on the, you know, on, on Friday and the Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. And, and um, that became the foundation of Steppenwolf Theater. You know, it was really started by 18-year-old kids, 17, 18-year-old kids. And now this theater, as I said, it's, I mean, this was 1974, we got this going. So it's 45 years old now. Uh, we own four buildings. We're building another one. I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy when you look back at it and you see what teenagers with a passion and a dream and a desire and enough energy and, and kind of this you don't know what you don't know kind of attitude 
uh, gets you. And it, it laid the groundwork for something that we built uh, as we moved from Highland Park, Illinois, into the city of Chicago, renovated another space that David Mamet had originally started. We took that over. We were in there for eight years, and then we built a building from the ground up, and now we own three or four buildings in the same area. I mean, it is a pretty amazing American story and something that probably could only happen in America that a high school screw-up could be doing this sort of stuff just, <laughs> you know, through sheer willpower and creativity because we now live in a, in a time when people tend to spend a lot of time thinking about how victimized they are, how, how difficult they've had it. You sound like you didn't come from a background where you were significantly privileged beyond sort of the normal privilege of living in the United States. My dad, uh, and I write about the family in the book, my dad was a film editor in Chicago. He, he, started, he started learning the film business when he was in the Navy. He processed film that was being, he was uh, in the Navy during the Korean War. Uh, at one point they said, do you want to go on a ship or you want a camera? <laughs> and he took the camera and he started taking pictures. Then they put him in the lab at the Pentagon, you know, at the, uh, in, uh, and no, at uh, Anacostia, it's a, it's a naval base right there uh, in D.C. And they put him in there and he was receiving the top secret film that was coming back from the front in Korea. And he had top secret clearance and he would process this film and take it over, over to the Pentagon and they would analyze the, the war footage to help them with their battle plans and things like that. So he learned the film business. He was editing things and all that. And then when he got out of the Navy, he went back to Chicago and started his own film film company. Um, it was, he made a modest living. It wasn't the, you know, the tremendous living, but he moved, he moved us from the South side where I grew up in, uh, I was born in Blue Island, Illinois, lived in Harvey, Illinois. And then we moved up to the Northern suburbs of Highland Park. And that's where I went to school. That's where I got into acting. That's where I met Jeff Perry. That's where Steppenwolf started. And it was really, it, it was it just, I was kind of a kid who was always kind of aimless. My dad was working all the time. I describe it in the book and I was sort of on my own. My mom had her hands full dealing with my, my sister and my brother and her mother and her sister. And I was just kind of crazy out there learning things on my own, trying to figure it all out. So I at an early age, I think I learned this sort of do-it-yourself, go at it. If you can think it, you can do it sort of attitude. You know, don't wait around for somebody to hand you something. And uh, so that's, that's, that's where all that came from. And, and uh, you know, I continued to do that as time went on. So how did you get from Chicago out to Hollywood? So I, my own parents, my, my dad and Bomber, both from Chicago. They ended up in Hollywood because my dad wanted to do uh, scoring for films that was a dream that never worked out for him. How did you end up out here? Well, it's, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, I started Steppenwolf with my buddies, Jeff Perry and Terry Kinney. And then um, my parents uh, in 1977, they moved uh, to L.A. from Chicago because my dad was a film editor. He had a business in Chicago. They wanted to open a West Coast office. So he opened that office out here in 1977. In 1979, I took a little break and came out here, uh, took a little break from Steppenwolf, came out here, lived with my parents to try to get in the movie business. I, I, there's some funny stories about some of the things I did uh, back then, but it didn't work out. Uh, I just really struggled. I couldn't get in the door. I was trying to sneak onto lots. I was trying to audition for things. I couldn't get a job. I, I couldn't get an agent. You know, it was just... It was just a terrible time. They kept telling me to go to get acting lessons. And 
I had this theater company in Chicago that I worked with, and they said, and I would tell them about that, and they said, well, I, I never heard of it. I, go, <laughs> go get some lessons. And so it was really frustrating, frustrating, frustrating time. So I went back to Chicago, uh, went back to my theater company, ended up being the artistic director, started directing a lot and directing plays. And some of the plays that I was doing uh, just hit. One of them was uh, one of them was called True West by Sam Shepard. Uh, John Malkovich and I were in that together, uh, in, and we moved it to New York. It was the first play that we moved to New York from Steppenwolf. Malkovich was, was an early member of the company. Uh, we worked together a lot uh, and did that play, and it was it was just a big hit. It was huge. It was a big hit for us. We moved it to New York. First thing there, Malkovich became a movie star after doing that play. Uh, and I kept directing. Went back to Chicago, kept directing. Ended up doing some, some plays that were really doing well. One of those plays was called Orphans um, that John Mahoney, rest his soul, uh, was in uh, along with Kevin Anderson and Terry Kinney. We did it off-Broadway. It was a big hit. Uh, and... I was offered a movie deal by uh, David Putnam, who uh, he produced *Chariots of Fire*. He produced uh, *A Mission*. He produced *Killing* the F *Killing Fields*. He was a big producer, and they gave him a job running Columbia Pictures. And he came to see that play, and eventually they offered me a directing deal at Columbia Pictures. And I was running Steppenwolf and doing things at Steppenwolf, and I felt, well, it was time to, to kind of break away, do some other things. So I came out here and took that deal and was uh, with Columbia Pictures for a couple of years trying to find something to direct for them. That was our deal. They had, it was a first look deal. So they got the first look at anything that I wanted to do. I never found anything that, uh, that they wanted to do, but I found another project that I ended up doing for another studio. And... Uh, that was the first movie I directed uh, called Miles From Home with Richard Gere and Kevin Anderson, Bun Brian Dennehy, Helen Hunt, Penelope Ann Miller, a bunch of people were in that. And, uh, you know, it was a good first try. But, uh, eventually, I think my second movie was much better. It was of Mice and Men. I knew that story very, very well. Malkovich and I had done it on stage, you know, like 10 or 12 years before I directed the movie. So... I was able to get the rights for, uh, from Elaine Steinbeck to make that into a movie, and I was a little more sure-handed, I think, at that one. But that it was 87, 1987, when I moved to Hollywood, and and then uh, after Of Mice and Men, Forrest Gump came along, and, you know, there you go. Well, in a second, I'm going to ask you about the differences between directing and acting and how it is to to be behind the camera as opposed to in front of the camera. But first, let's talk about making your business more efficient. Hiring can be pretty time consuming. You post a job to several online job boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Then you have to sort through all those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ziprecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates 
for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and then actively invites them to apply for your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. That rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address at ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. If you love this show, show your support for it and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest, B-E-N-G-U-E-S-T. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. ZipRecruiter is indeed the smartest way to hire. Again, check us out at ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. All right, so... Back to your directing career. So you, you came out here as a director, and yet I think most people know you more as an actor than they do as a director. Um, what is the difference for you between being behind the camera and in front of the camera? Which do you prefer? And, and did it help you to, as an actor to be a director in, in theater? Uh, it, it helped me as a director to be an actor, <laughs> I, would, I would say, because most of what I know as a director is from working with other actors and being an actor myself. So I... I always, uh, when I w would direct, I would uh, you know, I would direct from an actor's point of view. How, how can we make this, uh, you know, uh, dramatically uh, viable in the in the story? How can we punch up this energy here? How can we do that? You know, how would I play it? You know, I think, you know, maybe I can have some ideas about that and impart those to to other people. But uh, and. How do you shape the story, you know, to, to, to have it be uh, compelling? So I'm always looking at that. Uh, and what I know about directing movies uh, or, you know, which I've only done a couple of, is, is what I know about acting and directing plays, you know. So I just kind of, you know, I didn't study all that. Uh, I went to high school. I didn't go to college. I, I uh, just went right into founding Steppenwolf Theater and working in this basement uh, of a Catholic school, actually, is where the, the, the original Steppenwolf was in Highland Park. And this, this you know, I went, uh, there was this big empty basement at this closed down Catholic school. And we uh, asked the priest if, if he'd let us use it. And he did. And we paid him like one, $1 a, a year for a tax write off. And so in there, we developed our skills. You know, we were isolated. Uh, we weren't in the city of Chicago where there, you know, there's a lot of other theater there. We were in Highland Park, Illinois. There's only one little theater there and it was us. So we weren't distracted by a lot of other things and we stayed in the basement and just worked on our skills, worked on our work, kind of tuned up the way we, we approached things. Our whole ensemble approach was developed in those early days when we were kids. And I've carried that through through all these years of directing and acting, carried it. All those fundamentals that we learned uh, as kids, you know, uh, stay there. And we learned it together, really. So you know. you've done theater and you've done film and you've also done a lot of TV. I mean, I want to ask you about the transition from film to TV. So now TV is not considered a step down. For a long time there, it was like if you were in the films and then you went to TV, that was considered a step down. Now you're seeing all sorts of mainstream actors, big actors, and for whom it's a step up to move to TV. You were really one of the pioneers in that, actually. Uh, what was it like to move from the big screen to the small screen? Was that uh, a bit of a culture shock, or how did that work? It, it was a little bit. Uh, I remember being a little hesitant about it. I mean... Um, I was offered a television series in, 19, in 2004, um, and I had done a few little television things prior to that. I did a, a television movie with James Woods in, in uh, 1989 called My, My Name is Bill W., 
played a good supporting role in that. Had had a couple episodic roles, but nothing. I was always looking for the big movie part and uh, or the big part on stage or something like that. Never considered settling down into a television series until it was presenting itself to me. And then you know it was it was CSI New York, and it was already a successful franchise. They had done CSI Vegas, and then there was CSI Miami, and now they were going to spin off the third show within within four years or something like that. I mean, CSI Vegas uh, came out two years later. They had a another show in Miami. And two years after that, they had another show they were putting up in in, in New York, CSI New York. So, I mean, they, they spun this franchise off very quickly. Uh, and I knew they had a lot invested in this franchise. CBS was going to put a lot into it. Uh, I met with Anthony Zyker, who created the CSI franchise, uh, had a good meeting with him, and we had a good talk. And I was, you know, at that time, I was very focused on uh, supporting our military. It was post-September 11th. I was working with veterans. I was supporting FDNY in New York and Fire Family Transport uh, Foundation and uh, 9-11 family members uh, who had been affected by that terrible tragedy. Uh, Anthony wanted my character to, to be somebody who was affected personally by September 11th, lost his wife on September 11th. He's also a police officer. I knew a lot of veterans and police officers and who were personally affected by that. So I connected to the idea of playing a 9-11 family member and a first responder pretty quickly because I had been supporting them. And uh, once I got through the idea, uh, the 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 question of what will it be like to play the same guy week after week after week after week. Once I got through that, you know, all the other things were staring me at the face, in, in the face. Steady work, staying home, a good franchise, paycheck, all, the, all these things. And if it's successful, there, it would be, you know, a very rewarding uh, personally and financially, which it was. So... Uh, it was the right thing at the right time to go from, you know, what I was doing to television. And after the first year of struggling through figuring out what the show was and everything like that, I really embraced the idea that I was playing the same guy every week and had this steady job. And during that period, and I write about it in the book, uh, all the things I was doing to help the military and to support various military charities and all this stuff. The fact that I had that steady work and had that, uh, that job gave me uh, a means uh, to support many things that I believed in uh, that I never dreamed about. And uh, it really was, there's a, the, the chapter in the book where I talk about this is called Perfect Timing. And the timing could not have been better to, you know, with what I was doing on my charitable side and the service work and, get, and getting handed this television series. So you've worked on the stage, you've worked on the big screen, you've worked on the small screen. Which did you prefer and, and why? Because you see people who are sometimes successful on stage who can't make the transition to film, people who are successful on film who can't make the tra transition to stage. You've done all three. Which did you prefer? What were sort of the, the upsides and downsides? You know, I, I prefer employment. <laughs> 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 so that's that's uh, that's what I would say there, uh, and I uh, I 
I like being involved in things that, that kind of make sense to me. That that's it. You know, I've I've directed, I've acted in, in all the mediums, and um, you know, the parts that I've done on stage have been very rewarding. Generally, you know, um, the, the what I've done in film and television has generally been rewarding and uh, valuable, and I, I don't feel like it's been time uh, unwell spent. Um, so. It's hard to say, Ben, um, you know, that I prefer one over the other. Um, each one has given me something special and, uh, you know, I've, I've done what I think is good work in all those mediums. Well, the book also obviously goes into deep detail and, and I think necessary detail about your relationship with the U.S. military. So when did you first start getting involved with all of your outreach efforts on behalf of, of the military, with first responders, with, with police across the country? Uh, well, did it start with Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump or were you doing work with the military before that? Well, that was that was certainly part of it. And, you know, the, the, the Forrest Gump character was a wounded veteran, lost both his legs, uh, and uh, suffering terribly from post-traumatic stress. And, and uh, playing that part led me to, to start working with our wounded uh, 25 years ago. I mean, Forrest Gump came out 25 years ago this year. So uh, June 6th, uh, this summer, it'll be 25 years. Uh, that was certainly a part of getting involved with, uh, with our wounded. Uh, but prior to that, actually, I. I began uh, supporting Vietnam veterans groups in the Chicago area, getting involved with, with supporting them back in the early 80s. My wife's two brothers served in Vietnam, and her sister's husband also was a combat medic in Vietnam. So when I met her in 1970, really, we started dating, and uh, we got married in 81. We started da dating in 76. She was a part of the early history of Steppenwolf, or the early ensemble. She introduced me to her brothers and her sister's husband. And I asked them about Vietnam. I started talking to them. I was, I was uh, 18 years old in 1973. It was the last year of combat operations in Vietnam. The draft was over in 1983. I re recall uh, registering for the selective service, uh, but the draft was over. So. Uh, and I remember during high school, I'm, I'm doing all those plays. I'm playing my, in my rock band. I'm chasing those girls into the auditions and everything like that. And every night on television during that time, there are casualty reports. There are terrible stories about Vietnam. And my mom and is watching the television like this. And I'm calling my girlfriend and figuring out what the set list is going to be. And I wasn't really paying attention all that much. But when I met those... Uh, family members of my wife, and they started talking to me about what it was like for them to be in Vietnam and then what it was like for them to come home from Vietnam to a nation that had turned its back on our, on our military and uh, had rejected the Vietnam veteran. Uh, something happened to me. I just started thinking about that a lot. And I remember taking over as artistic director uh, for Steppenwolf, and one of the things I wanted to do was find some material that I could do that was focused on the stories of Vietnam veterans. And I read this, uh, uh, so as artistic director, you're always looking for plays and you get all these publications from different cities that have uh, the list of plays that are going on in those cities and what's going on. So I, I would do that. And I got one thing uh, that was from LA called the Drama Log. 
It was kind of what's going on in uh, sort of the small theaters in L.A. And I read this story about a play that was written by a group of Vietnam veterans and where they were actually performing the play that they, that they uh, wrote. So every night, these guys would recreate their own stories of what happened to them in Vietnam on stage. And it got very good reviews. It was a big hit. Uh, it sounded very powerful. I immediately got on an airplane and flew out to see it. Um, it's 1980. And I was, I was just knocked out. I went back the next night and saw it again. And uh, I went home to Chicago and I wrote to the guys that, uh, that did it. And I said, would you consider letting me do this play uh, to tell your stories that you're telling yourselves on stage every night? Would you let me do that at Steppenwolf? And they said, no, no, it should only be performed by veterans. We don't want anybody to do it but veterans. Eventually, the play closed in Los Angeles, and I just kept asking them, you know, what are you going to do with it? Well, no, no, no. And eventually, uh, we were doing a play in Chicago that Malkovich had directed, and it was called Balm and Gilead by Lanford Wilson, and it was high performance. Street. It, was, it took place in a diner, like a seedy diner in New York. So it's got all the night people out there, the the hookers and the pimps and the drug addicts and the, the, the junkies and the, you know, the crazy people running around. It was like 38 people on stage all just being <laughs> crazy, you know. And it was very high energy and we put Springsteen music in it. We put uh, Tom Waits music in it. We put Ricky Lee Jones. It was just very, you know, it was very Steppenwolf. That was kind of our thing. And so I said, I said to this guy, John DeFusco, who had created this play, Tracers, about these Vietnam veterans, I said, come see it. So he flew out, he saw it, and he, he loved it. And then he, he gave me the rights to do the play. I did it there. Veterans from all over the area came to see the play. A lot of Vietnam veterans. And this is 1984. So this was, you know, the, the, the Vietnam veteran wall had just opened in 1982. So this was still a time where Vietnam veterans were just not used to coming out of the shadows and telling their stories. But our play became this rallying point and veterans would come from all over and we ended up creating a night at Steppenwolf every week that was just simply for the veterans. And that began uh, a series of events and things uh, of my, that, that laid the bedrock for my veterans work going into the 90s and then post September 11th. So in just a second, I want to ask you about Lieutenant Dan, how it was to play that part, and your work with the USO, and, and generally what people don't get about the military. But first, let's talk about your impending doom. Life insurance is one of these topics that everybody knows a little bit about, but do you understand it well enough to feel comfortable buying life insurance? Whether you're an insurance expert or a newbie, Policy Genius created a website that makes it easy for you to compare quotes, get advice, and then get covered. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance in minutes. You can compare quotes from top insurers and find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. From there, you just apply online. The advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape for you. They will even negotiate your rate with the insurance company. No extra fees, no commission sales agents, just helpful advice and personalized service. Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. Whether you're shopping for disability insurance or homeowner's insurance or auto insurance, they can help you get covered fast. So no matter how much or how little you know about life insurance, you can find the right policy in minutes at Policy Genius. 
Com. Don't be buried in a pauper's grave. Make sure your family has the money that they need in case something should, God forbid, happen to you and you plots. Go check them out. PolicyGenius.com. PolicyGenius is the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Alrighty, so let's talk a little bit about Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan and how that changed your perspective on the military. So obviously you were already incredibly pro-military. You already wanted to tell the stories of people who had served and, and done that amazing work. What changed your perspective about playing Lieutenant Dan? I remember when I, uh, I I did Of Mice and Men, and that, I think, got the attention a little bit of the producers of Forrest Gump. Uh, at least it got me an audition. You know, I, here's a guy who directed and produced and is one of the two, two main guys in the movie. Uh, that got the attention of the producers and the director, uh, Robert Zemeckis, so I got an audition. Uh, and I read it, and I was going to audition to play a Vietnam veteran. And here I was, you know, I was had been supporting Vietnam veterans for 10, 12 years at that point uh, in various ways. Um, very much wanted to play that part. Just, uh, you know, I directed that play, Tracers. I had a cast of guys that were just amazing in it, all playing the Vietnam veterans. I wanted to be them. I wanted to be up there doing that myself, but I was the director and it was my passion project. Now here's an opportunity for me to play a Vietnam veteran in a way to honor my wife's two brothers and their sister's husband and all the many Vietnam veterans that I had, had met. It was a great story, a story of a Vietnam veteran that actually ends well up until that point. You know, uh, they started making movies about Vietnam about 1978. Um, three years after the fall of Saigon. And uh, there was The Deer Hunter and Coming Home and Casualties of War and, and these various movies started. But you always wondered at the end of those films if, if the Vietnam veterans was gonna be okay. At the end of every one of those movies, you're just not sure if he's gonna be, uh, be okay. At the end of Coming Home, one of them kills himself, you know. Uh, and at the end of the deer hunter, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the deer hunter, you're just you're just like it was always tragic, and and you just didn't see any way for the Vietnam veteran to be okay. Along comes Forrest Gump, and he goes through all that same despair and anguish and heartbreak and you know loneliness and anger and all, all these things. But what happens at the end of that story? He's successful. He's wealthy, he's married, he's moving on with his life, he's standing up on new legs, you know, he's <laughs> moving on. And it's a happy ending for a Vietnam veteran. We hadn't seen that movie, that story, but yet that story was the story of many Vietnam veterans. It just hadn't been told. There were many Vietnam veterans who came back, and while there are many that struggled for many, many years, there were also many that were able to put their service years behind them and move on in business and, and be okay. And here along comes Lieutenant Dan and that's his story. So I very much wanted to play that part. Um, I was lucky to get it. Uh, it introduced me to um, an organization called the DAV, Disabled American Veterans, uh, which I've supported now for 25 years because uh, you know, almost 25 years ago, about a month after the movie opened, they invite, invited me to come to their national convention. I tell the story in the book. And uh, they gave me an award for playing Lieutenant Dan. And, and they wanted to honor me for playing Lieutenant Dan in what they thought was a, an honest portrayal of a catastrophically 
injured soldier. Um, and they just felt it was, it was so many of the members of the DAV are Vietnam veterans themselves. They just wanted to recognize that work. And that began a relationship, as I said, has lasted 25 years. Uh, every year I go to their national convention. I play concerts for them. I've done PSAs. I've done uh, fundraising, different things for them. Many friends within the DAV. We have a program at my foundation that's in partnership with the DAV. That really started me uh, focusing on our wounded. And then along comes September 11th. And we deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. Our guys started, uh, gals, you know, our, our folks started getting hurt, started getting killed. And I, I was just, I just could not uh, sit by and do nothing. You know, that was such a devastating uh, attack on our country. And now we were deploying in reaction to that. And it was also became kind of a divisive time because as you recall during the Iraq war, after we went into Iraq in 2003, then 2004, five, six, seven, things started get, getting worse there. In insurgency, there was Abu Ghraib, there was all these things. During those years, you could just see it. I mean, what was happening in the coverage of it was very similar to what, was, what had happened in the Vietnam War. Things were just not going well. And, uh, you know, I just pictured our guys sitting over there watching television thinking, gosh, things are not going well and I'm sitting right here. And they, <laughs> they're saying it on the news every night. And, and I didn't want our folks deploying in reaction to that terrible event. People that were signing up because of those airplanes going into those buildings, I didn't want them to feel that they were being neglected or that the country would, was gonna turn its back on them or something. And it was a divided time, if you recall. Some people supported uh, George Bush and the efforts to, to, to go into Iraq and Afghanistan. Some people didn't. And it was, it was being, uh, it, it was a very divided time. And I wanted to help, you know, I wanted to help our service members get through it. So, and you know, just personally, and I say this in the book, my heart was just broken after that terrible day. It was broken and I needed to do something to, uh, to help heal that. Uh, and I felt having been involved with Vietnam veterans, wounded veterans through the DAV in the 80s and 90s, my role now would, would be to, to support the active duty folks that were responding to that attack. Yeah, no, you, you toured plenty in, in with, with members of the military, meeting members of the military. And do you have any sort of memories that stick out of that time? Because you've obviously done a ton of it and met an enormous number of, of members of the armed services. Yeah, just just all throughout all the travels and everything. I, I tell, you know, a, a number of stories in the book about uh, that have affected me and that have galvanized my, my passion for for making sure that we don't uh, forget uh, what our defenders do for us on a daily basis. And some of those stories are in the book. And um, I remember, the, uh, you know, I tell a story about, um, as a kid, I remember when my grandmother passed away. And uh, she was in her 60s and she was a heavy smoker. And uh, she, just 
wasted away in the hospital. And I, I went to see her and I was uh, just, I loved my grandmother. And I was just heartbroken seeing her just laying in the bed. And it was, it was terrible. And I just ran out of the hospital. And I never wanted to go, ba go back to a hospital unless I was on a gurney, you know. And when I started doing USO, uh, my first trip was to Iraq in uh, June of 2003. Then I came back. Then I went in, in, in July. Three weeks later, I went to Italy, visited troops there. And then about a month later, I, uh, in August, I was in Germany uh, visiting troops there. I just, want, I just went boom, boom, boom. I was going. Didn't have a job at the time. <laughs> and one of the things I was going to do in Germany was go to Landstuhl Medical Center, which is the main hospital in Germany where people come right off the battlefield and they go to the hospital. And they're stabilized in Germany, and then they're sent home to the States, to one of the hospitals here. And I was very apprehensive about going. I didn't, I, you know, I was just like, what's, what's it going to be like? You know, hospitals, I, I, I can't stand the thought of it. And uh, I remember my grandmother withering away, and it's just, just, it was bad. And I thought, and now I'm going to see guys that have been blown up and shot at and burned up. And I, mean, I was very nervous about it, I remember. I can remember sitting on the bus as the bus approached the hospital and we put in this little van and we pull up and just as we pull up, a big bus pulls up and a whole bunch of people run out of the hospital and they start unloading gurneys that have just come off the air airplane from the battlefield, sent back to the hospital. Wires and tubes and you know, IVs and, you know, everything. And they're, you know, these guys are all stabilized, but they got to get in there because they got surgery right away as soon as they get to the hospital. And that team ran out so professionally, getting them out of, that, out of those buses quickly. And I just stood there and watched. This was the first thing I saw at the hospital. Like seven or eight wounded guys being carried into the hospital on gurneys, all with wires and missing legs and all this stuff. I was just like, okay, take a deep breath here, you know. And they first took me into a room that had about 30 guys in it. And these were all guys that were banged up, cuts, bruises, gunshot wounds, whatever it was. But they were going to get patched up and sent back to the battlefield. And they were all in there and they were waiting, you know gel on their face from burns or whatever, you know, they were going to get fixed up and sent back to the war zone. And I walked in and I had a USO hat on and I'm like, this is, you know, remember this is before CSI New York. So I was Lieutenant Dan, but, uh, you know, I hadn't done much else. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know what to say or how to start it. And somebody looked at me and he said, Lieutenant Dan! <laughs> and he, and he, he burst into a smile. And they all had these thousand-yard stares on, on. You know, they were quiet in there. It was quiet. Nobody was saying anything. And then one guy just lit up and started smiling and calling me Lieutenant Dan. Then everybody started coming around and laughing and taking pictures. And all of a sudden, the whole mood in the room just completely changed. Nobody knew what my real name was. They just saw me from the movie and they wanted to talk about the movie and, the, and I saw, gosh. And then I left that room after being in there for 90 minutes or so, shaking hands and 
taking pictures, signing off autographs, to go upstairs to the hospital rooms. But I knew when I left that room, gosh, I just brought something into that room that was really, really positive. It, cha it changed the whole mood in the room, just showing up. So I went upstairs and that's when I saw a lot of really badly wounded people. Some didn't even know I was there, but their family members had flown it from the States to Germany and they were standing over hospital beds of amputees and waiting for them to wake up. And I changed their mood just by showing up. I'll never forget that because it started a, a whole journey of trying to support our wounded that I've been on ever since. Well, it's an, it's an amazing thing. And it's also, I would imagine, something that keeps you grounded. I mean, I've lived in Hollywood my entire life. You've been out here longer than I've been alive. But the, but the fact is that... Don't remind me. <laughs> but the yeah. fact is that you see so many people who, you know, are very wealthy and very famous who seem to have lost their grounding in reality. Uh, and, and you haven't. Do you think that you're, you're, you're both, you know, between your family life and your work with the troops, that's what's helped keep you grounded and, and on solid ground? Partially and par par partially my, just the, the background from working in a basement, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for all those years, you know, with, with actors. Uh, you know, a lot of the actors that were with us in those early days, Joan Allen, Laurie Metcalf, uh, as I said, Malkovich, Jeff Perry, you know, a lot of folks, Gary Cole, a lot, of, a lot of folks are all just sort of grounded in this Illinois thing that we had at that time. And rem they remember the days where we all worked for free. We didn't get any money. And everybody was just doing it for the love of it. That gave, that gave us a lot of, I think, a good, good fundamentals, you know, when we moved away from that into something that we had all had to struggle for. You know, nobody came out here, um, you know, and just got handed stuff right away. I mean, everybody kind of you know, work, work their way up. You know, Malkovich was a little bit different because uh, we went, he started, we went to New York. He started doing movies after that. But, um, you know, everybody had a pretty good grounding, I think, once we, once we started moving into the movie business already. And just simply because we remember, you know, it wasn't always, uh, you know, glamorous and all, all that. There was there was a struggle for a lot, a lot of folks uh, to to get there, and I remember that. And and certainly, you know, when you go to the war zones, and you see how people are living in the war zones, and you live with them that way for a little bit, and you eat what they eat, and you sleep on what they sleep on, and and all of that, uh, and you continue to do that, it gives you a a. a <laughs> It's a reality check, for sure. So I know that right now you're spending an awful lot of time on touring, and I want to hear about what happens after the tour is over. What are your plans for the future? To have that question answered, however, you need to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. That's the only way you're going to get to hear the answer to that question and more behind the paywall. It's $9.99 a month, and we provide you all sorts of goodies. I mean, it's not just the rest of this show. It's also the rest of my daily show, which means two additional hours per day. All sorts of great stuff. Go check it out over at dailywire.com. All right. Gary's book is Grateful American, A Journey from Self to Service. Everybody should go check it out. And Gary, thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate your yeah, time. It's my pleasure, bud. Thank you. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Mathis Glover. Edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019.
We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 